This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Welcome, families. In our foster care village here in Utah, we like to think we're all pieces of the same machine and that if we all work together towards what's best for the child, that machine will run smoothly. I'm Deborah Lindner. In this episode of our podcast, we'll be bringing you a special conversation about how to be part of the team that works towards that outcome. And I'm Liz Rivera. This was an enlightening online conversation with a foster parent, the Utah Division of Child and Family Services, DCFS, as we will refer to them, and one of our foster adoptive consultants. Within Child Welfare, we frequently discuss how we can create real partnerships, and in this chat, you'll hear examples of what this partnership can look like. The conversation begins with the moderator, Utah Foster Care's Anna Gibson. Well, I am so excited to be here with all of you tonight. I'm very excited to have our partners here with us tonight in creating a conversation that can help potential foster parents as they're making decisions to know if this is the right time and the right path for their family, as well as existing foster parents in creating a partnership with their child's caseworker in moving through the case. My name is Anna Gibson with Utah Foster Care, and we're joined with Corey Doolin and Courtney Muir from the Division of Child and Family Services, as well as Millie Pfaff. Corey Doolin, who is a supervisor with DCFS, and I'll give him just a minute to introduce himself. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, so my name is Corey Doolin. I am a program manager currently in the northern region for DCFS based out of the Ogden office. I have worked there for my entire career. I've been with the division for 13 years, which is like a dinosaur nowadays with how much turnover we've had lately. I've been in the supervisor role for a little bit over two and a half years, give or take. Before that, I was an ongoing caseworker. I only worked in the ongoing aspect of things. So when the court had worked reunification services, that's the only area that I ever worked in. I've never done CPS or any of that stuff. But yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. So I'm Courtney. I am a caseworker in the Ogden office, Northern region. Corey's my supervisor. I have always been an ongoing worker. I've worked for DCFS for almost six years. Not quite a dinosaur, but still a very long time. (laughs) Six years these days are considered a dinosaur. Um, Have you done any other casework? Because I know that there's different focuses within being a caseworker for the Division of Child and Family Services. What has been your focus during the time that you've been there, Courtney? I've been an ongoing caseworker the whole time. They started making on-call mandatory. So I've been doing some on-call shifts and that's kind of more CPS stuff, but primarily the ongoing, on the ongoing side of things. Millie Pfaff was a foster parent in Northern Region for a long time, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm excited to be here. My name is Millie. I've been a foster parent for about 10 years, but if I'm going to be honest, I lost track of time and I don't exactly remember, but I know how old my oldest adopted daughter is. And if I do the math, it's roughly 10 to 11 years. I've adopted twice. I don't know. I've done everything. I've done teenagers. I've picked newborns up from the hospital. 
I've done crisis, I've done respite, I've obviously adopted a couple of times. I've had kids go home. I've had kids go to kinship. I've had kids do an ICPC. I had a case looked at for ICWA. I think I've kind of ran the gamut of possible things that you <laughs> may have done as a foster parent, but, but that's me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for being here today. I know that this is, is your off time, and we really appreciate you, you being here. So a couple of things that I do want to clarify, an ongoing caseworker is a foster care caseworker, meaning that they are overseeing the case of a child that is in foster care, working towards reunification. They help that child navigate the system of being in foster care and away from their family, as well as focusing the the parent's efforts in being safe and stable and having the ability to have their, their family strengthened and their child returned to them. Millie threw out a few acronyms. ICWA is the Indian Child Welfare Act, specifically relating to our Native American children in foster care. And an ICPC is an interstate child compact or child placement compact, meaning that a child in foster care is traveling to another state to be placed in a foster home, usually with a family member. I definitely want to jump in because I think that there are a lot of things that are misunderstood as far as what a caseworker's role is and what a program manager or supervisor's role is. And so in a few sentences, if you can, if you wouldn't mind, Corey, starting in really kind of helping us understand what your role is as a program manager with the Division of Child and Family Services. Yeah, so it varies from a day-to-day aspect, but I mean, just like a caseworker who manages and maintains their caseload, my job as a program manager is to, you know, make sure that my team is meeting the day-to-day activities, meeting our policy and procedure guidelines. It's kind of just being like a ringleader in a sense, like making sure that my team has somebody to staff with or to, if they need help or coverage like a basic supervisor role to make sure that Courtney and the other four workers on my team are getting their day-to-day stuff done. Being a supervisor, I feel if I'm fielding a phone call from a client, it's usually from something negative in a sense. And so I'm fielding some of those, you know, complaints. I go to AG staffings, I go to transfer staffing. So, so the behind the scenes aspects of that, that's what I do from day-to-day as a supervisor. You've mentioned the AG. So the AG is is an acronym for the Attorney General's Office. And so it's basically the Division of Child and Family Services legal representation through the process in juvenile court. Courtney, I'm going to let you tell us a little bit about how you would describe your role as a caseworker and what your caseload looks like. I know that it varies from caseworker to caseworker and focus area to focus area, but maybe talk a little bit more specifically about your own. How many cases are you managing? Do you have sibling groups? Tell us a little bit about that. Right now, I think I'm at 13, but I recently just closed a bunch. So I'm waiting to get a bunch of new ones here any minute, but I would say typically my caseload has been between 14 and 17, roughly. There was a point where I was at 21, but that's just because people were quitting and the workers that are still there kind of have to pick up on all the cases that that worker had. And like Corey said, turnover is really high. So we try our best, but definitely does vary. 
but I'd say 14 to 17 cases is pretty typical. Is that 14 to 17 children or 14 to 17 families? So a foster care case, each child counts as a case. There are in-home cases, and that's just the family as a whole in that case is one case. As far as my role, I mean, we just manage everything on the case, every little detail we're managing that. And so um, we supervise visits between parents and the children. We do home visits once a month in the home that they're in, whether that's a foster home, a kinship placement, or if they're in an in-home case. But it varies. We do a safety assessment that tells us how many times we need to go out to the home. So it could be up to once a week, depending on the risk and the safety of the family and of the kids. We go to court. I write court reports, which is pretty much a summary of everything that's happened between hearings. So I submit that for the judge to read over before the hearing. So they're kind of up to date with what's going on. I conduct child and family team meetings with the families, which are a meeting where we discuss the needs of the family, services that we're going to recommend to them, resources that we can get them connected with. Um, we talk about visits. We talk about the health of the children. It's just kind of a, an opportunity for people to the family's team to come together. And that includes both professionals and whatever family members they want to be involved in that process. I also create child and family plans. And then that basically just has what our recommendations are for the parents to complete to the court and the court will order that child and family plan. So it basically has the court orders listed on it of the things that the parents or the families required to do. It kind of becomes the outline for the case of yeah. things that you want to focus on in, in strengthening that family and, and reunifying them. Yeah. And I, I think it's helpful as kind of like a checklist, if you will. So as they do things, I just tell the families I work with, like, mark it off. <laughs> so I think it helps to physically see, you know, what you've done and what you still need to do. So I think they're helpful that way. I regularly staff cases, both with Corey and as things arise, just with administration or whoever needs to be involved if there's an issue going on. But we staff primarily with our supervisors. If there's any question we may have, we provide referrals to the treatment agencies that work with our families. So therapy, peer parents, families first. So we get that process going, send over the paperwork to do that. We upload lots of paperwork to our database. <laughs> lots of paperwork, <laughs> logs, lots of logs. You have to log every single thing you do, every conversation you have. And also a big part of our job is providing recommendations to the court on, I mean, regarding reunification, really. And if we feel it's appropriate, discuss whatever issues are going on. And so, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Nice. I, I appreciate that. You mentioned a child and family team. So I think that is a, a really big part that because you have all been members of a child and family team. And I think that that is a perfect opportunity to kind of bring to light some of the partnering that happens between a caseworker with the Division of Child and Family Services, a foster parent incorporating the parents and understanding roles, goals, expectations, all of those different things. When you're preparing for a child and family team meeting, who do you seek to invite to those meetings? I'm there. I conduct the meeting, obviously. But the parents are invited. The foster parents should be invited. The guardian ad litem, which is the attorney, and they represent the children in court. So they're always at those meetings. The AGs, which is the division's attorney, can be involved if the parent requests. Like if they want their attorney there, 
the AG will be at ours for, for us. Therapists, we love to be there, whether it's the child's therapist or the parent's therapist. If the family's in a peer parenting program, we'll have the peer parent come. Family's first representative that's working with the family. Um, we have our healthcare nurse that comes. So each child that is in foster care has a healthcare nurse that kind of follows up on the needed appointments that the children needs and any follow up on, on any health issues that go on. And if it is an ICWA case, an Indian Child Welfare Act case, um, we have the ICWA worker. There's usually a caseworker from the child's tribe that will attend those as well. And as far as, so those are more professionals that we like to invite, but I like to open it up to the parents. Sometimes they're not comfortable with their family being there. And I don't feel like that's my place to, to invite them. I like them to feel comfortable and to invite who they feel like is a support to them specifically. So I kind of leave their informal supports up to them of who they want to bring. So I want to kind of jump back a little bit because what you're talking about and the things that you've described to me sound very overwhelming. Why is it that you chose a career in social work? What took you into social work? And then what keeps you at the Division of Child and Family Services? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> Just kidding. And that's um, coming your I, way too, Corey. So be ready for that <laughs> one when it comes. Well, I've always known, I've always been a kid person. I've always known that I wanted to work with kids in some regard. In college, I went to Utah State. I took an intro to social work class and I've always just found foster care intriguing. I've found substance abuse and addiction intriguing, mental health. And I feel like this job kind of covers it all in some aspects. But yeah, it honestly started with that intro class. I was just really interested and decided to go forward with it. And what keeps me at DCFS, I really, as overwhelming as the job can get, stressful, emotionally draining, I really love what I do. I feel a sense of fulfillment with the children. They're in such a vulnerable state in their life. And I feel like I love being a person that they can trust and that they know they can be safe around. So, and I also love seeing the parents change. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but you can honestly tell which ones are really trying to make the effort. And it's really cool to see that overcoming an addiction or mental health, mental illness or whatever it may be. Even when sometimes reunification isn't an option and adoptions are fun too. Those are always fun hearings as well. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely good and bad, but I feel like every outcome, most of the outcomes for the children are in their best interest and they end up in a good spot. So regardless of where they're at, and also, honestly, my coworkers keep me sane. <laughs> so they're a big reason why I stay there because it is a stressful job. So they definitely play a big part of it as well. It definitely helps having a supportive team that kind of gets it when we need to vent. So we're kind of each other's therapists in a way. So, Corey, I'm going to turn that same question over to you. You know, what took you to, to social work and, and what keeps you at the Division of Child and Family Services? All right. So unlike Courtney, I, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to college. I went to college to play basketball on a scholarship and I took some general ed classes and then I had to transfer from a school from Montana to South Dakota to finish my career. And I was actually going to be a teacher, but with, with the way credits transferred and other things, I would have had to have stayed in school longer and I didn't want to do that. And mm -hmm. so 
I also knew like Courtney, like I was either going to be in probation or I knew I wanted to work with people in some regard, but I didn't go to school knowing that I wanted to be a social worker. I literally went to play basketball and I can admit that to people. But after I got out of school and or I, in my senior year, I had a best friend whose mom worked at the Division of Child and Family Services and I did an internship there and I kind of really got to see things and was like, you know, this sounds like something that I'd like to do working with kids and with people. I applied. It was the first job that I applied for. I've only applied for one job in my career and I wow. got it. And so um, since that time, though, like Courtney said, like for as tough as this job is, like the working for the state, it's a really flexible job. There's good benefits. So a lot of those things have always outweighed, you know, having a family and other things that I've had to take into consideration. But like Courtney said, you get attached to kids, you get attached to clients in a sense and seeing people make the positive changes. It is rewarding in a sense that we get to play, you know, I stay in touch. I've worked with Millie before as a foster parent, as her worker. I've had worker or clients that still stay in touch with me that have been clean and sober for, you know, four or five years and stuff. And so, and you just, it, it's just a connection type thing. I think I, I enjoy working with people. And so it's just, there's never been anything that's enticed me to leave the division. And so I've enjoyed my time there and have continued to do so. I want to jump over to Millie really quickly. Why did you become a foster parent? What, what brought you to the point where you're like, I, I want to care for children that are in foster care and what kept you going for 10 years? I don't know. <laughs> and that's the honest truth. Like Courtney, I have always had a thing for children. My first job was at a daycare, and I always knew that adoption was something that I wanted to do. However, I did not get into foster care to adopt. I wanted to help. And I think maybe that is what kept has kept me going for so long, is that my end goal isn't adoption. It never has been. It's helping. And I want the best for the kids that are in my home. And if that's staying with me, then that's great. And if that's being able to go back home with mom and dad who are healthy and doing well, that's amazing. If grandma and grandpa show up and they're wonderful or aunts or uncles, really, I just want, I've always wanted to help. And that's where I come from, as I come from a background of just trying to help the kids in my home, help other foster parents. I think that's why I do what I do now is I want healthy families for our kids. And in order to get healthy families for our kids, somebody has to help. So there's obviously a lot of communication that goes back and forth between a child's caseworker and the foster parent. Courtney, tell us how much is, what is helpful communication and, and, and what is too much communication when it comes to the interaction that you have with the foster parent? What do you find as, is that balance? Because you are, you know, if you've got 15 to 17, up to 21 cases, you have children in multiple different types of placements, not just foster homes, but what do you need from the communication? What's helpful and what's not? Uh, well, I honestly just think open communication is how I like to go. Like for me, I just think about like how many different types of people we're going to work with in this job, whether it's a parent, a foster parent, even our supervisor, like everyone's not going to mesh all the time. So I just 
keep an open mind that we all have different personalities and it might not be a great match for a case, but that's okay. Because <laughs> we all have the same goal in the end, which is, you know, to help the children. Like if there's an issue that comes up with a foster parent, that's a good time to bring in their RFC. But I don't like to just go to the RFC. Like I'll send out an email or we'll do a group phone call or something like that with all of us involved. So everybody's kind of in the loop of what's going on and we can kind of make a plan from there. That's really helpful for for foster families to understand that are interested in becoming foster families is that the foster family themselves has what I would describe as their own caseworker. That mm-hmm. caseworker is called a resource family consultant or RFC. And their role is to help the foster parent navigate DCFS's system in establishing, you know, roles, goals, and, and healthy communication back and forth. And they can almost act as kind of a liaison in creating that initial connection between the, the caseworker and the placement of the child in the foster home and really help to smooth through those lines of communication. And it can be difficult. I'm just going to say, I don't know how foster parents are foster parents. I couldn't do it. I think it's fair to say that it takes all kinds. Not everyone can be a foster parent. I think the first lady with her show up initiative that is really out there right now is, you know, not everybody can be a foster parent, but how can you support a foster parent? How can you support a child in foster care? And even on our conversation today, how can you support the caseworkers that are there on the front lines every day? Everyone has a role and everyone can have an impact. Millie, did you have anything that you wanted to hop in with? You know, there's us foster parents out there who are foster parents that don't know how DCSF workers do it. We don't know how you manage all of us and how you go to court and how you come back day to day and deal with everything that you guys have to deal with. I thought about being a CPS worker for a hot second, and then I really looked at what you guys did, and you're kind of amazing. I don't think you guys get enough credit sometimes with how much you do for our kids and how, how sometimes you do things that maybe you don't want to do, but your hands are tied because of policy. You're the front line of frustration for foster parents too. And to get it from foster parents and bio families. And, you know, if something didn't go right in court, I've seen, I've seen judges a little frustrated too. I'm totally impressed. And that's why I popped in as, as I wanted to say, it really does take a village to raise these kids and I can't do what you do. So I'm, I'm glad that you're there to do it. You know, I couldn't do what you do. <laughs> I mean, we place these kids in these homes and say, love them like your own, but they might go home at any minute, you know? So it's like, we're asking two extremes, really like prepare yourself for them to leave, but also love them like they're going to be there forever and that, you know, that they're your child. So I think Courtney kind of hit it. You're not all going to be on the same page all the time. Everybody is coming at this from the, the perspective and the role that they're in. And so a foster parent's viewpoint and role is, is definitely going to be different than the caseworkers, even from the supervisors. So when you have those conflicting things, how do you come to a common ground? Is it more private conversations? Are they handled during a child and family team meeting where multiple people are involved? Tell me a little bit about how you've done some conflict resolution. Well, starting out with a case, I always tell my foster parents, like, I wish I could give you a timeline of what to expect, how things are going to go, like when exactly we should expect the child to go home. It's hard because it's all just kind of a gray area. And honestly, like things change 
within a day sometimes. And so like, I never promise anything. But as far as conflict too, I mean, at DCFS, we have professional staffings or things that include our administration, the worker, the guardian ad litem can be involved in that. Most all the time, we have a clinical worker at DCFS that provides kind of their input on best interest of the child. And that's really what it comes down to. And in those staffings, I mean, we put out all the scenarios and we talk about them in detail and just kind of decide as a team from there. It is hard when there's conflict and and a lot of the time it is addressed in team meetings too, but sometimes I like to talk to foster parents during home visits when the parent's not present. It just depends on what's going on in the case, but I do like to talk in home visits typically and and have those staffings I think are really good because sometimes like Millie said, our hands are tied with some decisions. If it's in policy or law, like there's some things we just have to do. So it makes it kind of hard that way. Well, and I, and I think that that, I mean, there's a reason why you guys are in the positions that you're in and why you are up to date on policy and law and procedure and different things like that. And I remember reading through rules and, and statutes and different things and how it would adjust and change and vary from year to year as things went through. And, and, and that I think is a little bit of the weeds, but you know, some of those things impact how you practice and how you interact with foster parents. Corey, you said that you oftentimes as you're getting involved with foster families and different things like that, sometimes it's because, you know, the caseworker and the and the foster parent, maybe they aren't seeing eye to eye. What's your approach to those types of situations in trying to find common ground? Yeah, that's one of the hardest balancing acts, because unfortunately, in the hierarchy of things, we're working reunification with a parent and a family. Sometimes, unfortunately, it does, it's not fair by any means, but unfortunately, sometimes the foster family gets bumped down a few pegs when it's not fair. But unfortunately, with what the court's expectations or other things, we're going to sometimes have to cater to the parent's schedule or other things. Or a foster parent like Millie probably has examples. One case that you had in the past is going to be run differently than the most current one. So just being there to like listen to them, but then to also say, I understand where you're coming from, but da da da, and like spelling things out. I think just being open and transparent. Sometimes people do just want to vent or complain, but then they know, like, I know it's not Courtney's fault, but I just needed to talk to somebody to get clarification type of a thing. And so my goal is to always be the mitigating factor of, I'm never going to always side with my caseworker or the foster parent. It's just trying to get that collective unit together to, you know, look long-term at how that looks. And sometimes it goes in a foster parent's favor and other times it doesn't. But I think as everybody, as long as they feel heard, I think a lot of the time we can come to a resolution moving forward. I think you really kind of hit it right there is, is having someone feel heard and seen. That is a very powerful place to be, even if it can't go the direction that you want it to go, because we are all here for the reason of, of helping, um, you know, a child through their healing journey. So Courtney, you talked about home visits, about how often do you visit a child in a foster home and what does a home visit typically look like? Yeah. So when a child first comes into custody, they're visited once a week or should be visited by policy once a week for four consecutive weeks starting out. And that's when they're first removed. And then after that, it's usually just a monthly basis that we go around and see all of our kids. First and foremost, we're there to not only support the foster parent and let them ask any questions they have about anything that's going on, but also to make sure 
the child's well-being is being taken care of and that they're safe. Our primary job, I think, and the point for home visits is just to ensure that. So if the child's old enough to speak and comprehend, the caseworkers should be having a private conversation with them. And we don't try and like pry information, but just like, just to make sure that, you know, like depending on their age, like, are you happy? Do you know what safe means? Kind of provide maybe some examples. Do you feel safe here in this house? Sometimes foster parents might feel a little bit intimidated by those conversations, but that's one of the times for people to understand that that is a policy, you know, when the child does have that ability to communicate and comprehend that you're always checking on their safety. And those conversations are not an intent to, to pry or different things like that, but it really is to verify that a child understands what safe is because they very likely will not always be in a foster home and being in a safe place and knowing what safety is, is something that you're essentially helping a child understand and giving them an opportunity to know how to communicate. I'm safe. I'm not safe. I'm scared. Like I've had a kid say that he didn't feel safe. He was a little boy. He's like four. And I just kind of explored that. I was like, okay, why do you feel unsafe or you know, what's scary to you or whatever. And he'll, and he said something about like a Halloween decoration in the basement, (laughs) just fun talking to these kids. But, and also in home visits, I mean, I always ask about how they're sleeping. Are they sleeping? Well, a lot of kids have night terrors or other things like that. that are I think that are important to kind of note or how they're eating. I know eating habits can differ between kid to kid, especially if you know, just depending on whatever needs there are, or issues, that trauma, whatever it may be. But I always just check on kind of the health things, get information on any upcoming appointments or appointments that have gone on. When I'm leaving the home, I'll always ask the foster parent, like, do you have any questions for me? Any concerns? And then I always just have an open invitation. Like you have my phone number, give me a call if you think of something or text me or whatever's easiest. I like to see home visits as both checking on the child and, you know, just making sure their needs are being met and also just being a support for the foster parent. And being seen and heard. Millie, what does a home visit look like from your end of things, from the foster parent's perspective? Is a home visit intimidating? What does a home visit look and feel like from your perspective of being the foster parent? Whether or not it's intimidating is if my home-to-home binder's up to date or if I'm missing anything. If... (laughs) I really enjoy having my caseworkers come see me. I, I always have. I, I like that I get to know them a little bit because I feel that if I know my caseworker and I have a good relationship with my case, my child's caseworker, then communication is more open. I feel like I can ask any questions that I need to ask. Part of what I like to do is just to kind of get to know them a little bit as a person. How are they? What's going on in their life? If, are they good? Do they need anything from me? Can I help them in any way? The way I kind of look at it is we're all pieces of this same machine. And if we're all working our very best together, then this is going to go as smooth as possible, even if we hit bumps. I really liked that Corey said that it might not always go the foster parents way, but he tries to explain. And I think a big portion of good communication is understanding, being heard and being seen, but also having an understanding of where they're coming from. Like, I'm, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. I didn't roll the dice and that's, this is how it landed. This is why it's happening this way. This is the, the way it's going to need to go. And just the knowledge that they share while they're there is very helpful. It's like 
Courtney said, it's a very nice time to be able to talk to the caseworker one-on-one about the case. Is there anything I need to know without having mom sitting there hearing what you're going to say? Is there anything I can help mom and dad with? Is there anything I can do to help them? What does the case look like? How did court go if I didn't get to go to court? I look at my caseworkers coming into my home as a wonderful op- learning opportunity. I get to learn about them. I get to learn a little bit more about the case. I remember on one of my last cases, Corey came to my home. He talked to me a little bit about, you know, what do you think? You know, this is kind of what I'm thinking about this. What what do you think? And I don't know that a caseworker had ever asked me that before. And I thought that was kind of amazing. It didn't mean he was going to do anything with what I thought, but he cared enough to ask. And that was huge. I've had the opportunity to watch both Corey and Courtney in casework. And part of the reason why an invitations were extended to them is because I think that they're examples of what it can look like when you really put energy into creating a relationship and a partnership with a foster family and allowing them to be part of, of the team and have a voice and be seen and heard while still following policy and guidelines and making sure that your role and goal of strengthening a family and keeping a child safe are always met. I'm so grateful that Millie was able to to kind of touch on some of the different questions that she's able to ask during a home visit that really is more of a private conversation with the caseworker. There are definitely things that need to be talked about with the entire child and family team that will include professional parties, parents, caseworkers, supervisors, foster parents, all of those things. But then there are individual conversations that are meant to strengthen relationships and, and fine-tune communications through there as well. We're kind of winding down. We've got about 10 minutes left. And I just wanted to kind of open it up to you, Corey, first. Things that you would want a foster parent to know, both you know, a, a new foster parent and a seasoned foster parent, ways that they can approach things that are very helpful in creating that teamwork environment. The level of transparency, I always just think is the biggest thing. And it kind of follows back just into what Courtney and Millie were saying is that like, every time you talk with your caseworker, I always try and preach like when I read logs for my workers or I'm staffing cases, it's how meaningful are the conversations that we're having with people. Sometimes it takes Courtney going to a house with someone like Millie, who is a seasoned foster parent, that home visit may only be 20, 30 minutes where if you're a new worker, you may have 50 questions and it's okay that the worker may seem a little rushed and stuff, but there's never a a dumb question in a sense. That's how I feel like, but it's just letting people know that there's a ton of resources out there. Like if foster parents will just ask before it gets to an issue of having to call me, call your resource family consultant. You can request a team meeting. Sometimes I don't think that foster parents understand, Hey, I don't like how visits are going or this and that. I want to have a child and family team meeting with the guardian ad litem there and those kind of things like parents advocate for themselves. DCFS advocates for themselves. Foster parents sometimes, I think, like I said, get lost in the shuffle. And I don't think that it's personal. It's not deliberate. But unfortunately, sometimes I think they they get, like I said, they get bumped down a few pegs and it's not fair, but people they need to advocate for themselves as well. Because like I said, Foster parents are the unsung heroes on these cases that sometimes, unfortunately, you'll go to team meetings and the parents are hearing all the praise. Hey, you're doing great. You're doing great. But Millie's like, well, hey, what about me? I'm doing awesome, too. Not deliberate or personal and stuff, but that's what I always try and push to have like 
a meaningful conversation, whether if that's good, bad, or in between, but we have to have some of those, you know, tough conversations. And, but for new foster parents, it's a wild roller coaster. I mean, I've never been in that role, but obviously I've worked tons and tons of cases and I oversee, I think currently on my team, we have over 90 cases with my five workers. So, I mean, there's a ton of dynamics that go into it, but don't be afraid to ask questions and just hang on. Like I said, there's going to be cases where you're dead set that reunification is going to happen. And then next thing you know, something bad happens and it's like, Hey, are you willing to keep these guys forever? Or Millie could have been a crisis placement and they went to a kinship home and the kinship disrupted and she's going to get a phone call back. And then maybe at that time it's like, Oh, I grew attached. I don't want to just be crisis. I'm willing to be, you know, a permanent home and stuff. So just be prepared for the unexpected in those directions is what I would encourage them to do. As soon as you think you got it figured out, just like us, something changes or the dynamics change. And so it's just, it's an evolving field and we're working with humans and emotions that are real. And so that's what we all have to take into consideration that these cases aren't always fair in a sense. And so that's just the reality of social welfare and the juvenile court system. Well, and I think it's important to understand fair from whose perspective, you know, there are a lot of different parties. We've talked a lot about everybody that can be involved in a case. There are a lot of different things fair from whose perspective. And it really comes down to what is in the best interest of this child, the one that is right in front of you and the one that this case pertains to. And it will change and vary from child to child and case to case and understanding that everybody is on the roller coaster, not just the foster parent, not just the child, not just the parents. Everybody is on the roller coaster. And to piggyback on that, Anna, like the biggest thing there is we hear best interest. Unfortunately, that means getting the parents, the caseworker, the judge, the guardian ad litem, the public defenders, all to kind of come to a common ground, which unfortunately is not going to always happen. But, you know, ultimately the judge makes those decisions and hopefully through a competent caseworker, a great foster parent, all that information is getting relayed to the judge that's going to say, yes, this kid's going home or no, this kid's not. And that we all feel heard and empowered during that time. But the best interest with managing that many people's opinions, it's tough for sure. And so, but that's where the family team, hopefully having a good level of communication can outlet that to the right people to make those decisions. Absolutely. Courtney, anything that you wanted to add in on that? I mean, I, I just like to bring up a lot of the time with these children, they have, you know, depending on the situation, pretty severe, like behavioral needs, different disabilities. I feel like sometimes, which understandably so, the foster parents get to a boiling point and the placement's going to disrupt. But I just want to say, like, reach out to your RFC. We can get family therapy in the home um, just so they can process the whole situation. But we always look at that like, oh, this foster parent's stressed out. What can we do? Can we put anything, you know, any service into the home to help them? I've had a peer parent go into a foster home before. We've had family therapists go in and work with the kids and the foster parents together. There's respite you can utilize if you just need a break. I just encourage everyone to use those. And also just, I've just thought of some questions that I like being asked from foster parents. So I had a foster mom recently ask, and this is the first time I've been asked this, but like, she just asked for advice and input on how she can talk to the parent. She kind of felt like mom, which I think happens a lot. The parents often feel like, or see the foster parents as kind of a competition, you know, like I might've, I'm not able to have my kid 
this person has my kid? Do they just want to adopt my kid? Um, I feel like there's lots of, and lots of comparing as well. Like I think there's, and it's hard for parents to see their kid in a home that we've determined to be safe and, and they're not. So I feel like a lot of that happens, but this foster mom just asked like, how can I be a support to her, but not be too overbearing that I have her kid and she doesn't like, I don't want to send her too many pictures and make her upset. That's one of the things I thought was really good. The more support the parent has, the better. And I think the foster parent, the parent's relationship matters. And another thing is kinship is an often an, a concern for foster parents, especially with ICPCs when we're looking at out-of-state relatives. When we submit that paperwork, it takes months. I've had one. My last one I did took about nine months to get approved to California. And during that time, I try and bring up during my home visits regularly, just so the foster parents aware, because we typically don't move the child out of state for visitation reasons with the parent until or unless reunification isn't working out and adoption's the goal, then we'd send them out of state to that family member. So, but in the meantime, they'd stay with the foster parent. So I always just keep them updated on kinship. I'm like, Hey, I sent the ICPC off to grandma in California, just so you're aware, or like this aunt called me and she's interested in placement. I just try and keep them involved, the foster parent involved as much as I can. So it's not a sudden surprise, you know, that we're moving them. I've just been really grateful that you guys have taken some time to to bring into this. Millie, I want to give you a, the last minute. We're really coming up on time here, but anything that you wanted to add as, as a final message from your perspective as the foster parent? The final thing that I would say is please remember, communicate. Communicate before you're in stress. Communicate your needs, your child's needs, your foster child's needs, your husband's needs. Communicate everything caseworkers communicate anything that comes down, keep them in the loop so that when different things roll down the line, it won't be a surprise because they've known all along. Honest, open communication with everyone. Don't be afraid of the, of the bio parents. They're amazing. They have an issue that they're working with, but they're still amazingly strong people to even be working through this. Communicate with them. The better relationships you have with everybody there, the better the case is going to go for you, no matter which way it it ends. Thank you all so much for joining us on on really explaining and and diving into a little bit more what it looks like when foster parents and caseworkers work as a team. And I think Millie summed it up very well, communication of everything. We're very grateful to Corey and Courtney for sharing their expertise and their time with us tonight and explaining things from the perspective of the Division of Child and Family Services. They have done a fantastic job in in talking through those things and and in Millie in, in really being able to do that. You cannot build a partnership and you cannot work as a team without communicating every step along the way. And I was going to say, you asked me earlier if there's a such thing as too much communication. For me, there's not. <laughs> I'd rather have too much than them, you know, be holding something in and boiling over it. So just, just ask the questions. I just wanted to one final thing. If anybody in here is thinking of becoming a foster parent, I just encourage everybody to get as much information, you know, Anna through the Foster Care Foundation, Millie, there's so many resources out there to gather and to explore we need great foster parents. We need more foster homes. If anybody's on the fence, I really would just encourage someone to try. And I think 
it, like I said, there's good, the bad, and the ugly, but it's such a rewarding experience for the kids, the foster parents, the parents that I would just encourage everybody to really dig deep and to like look into the information and to make a really, you know, educated decision moving forward. I appreciate that. We invite those that are interested in becoming foster families to please reach out, visit us online at utahfostercare.org, request some additional information. Someone like myself will have a conversation with you and walk you through the way that your family can be a resource to children in foster care. And in being a resource to children in foster care, you will be a resource to caseworkers, to supervisors, and to parents in strengthening a family and making sure that a child is safe. Thanks again, all of you for joining us. And I wish you all a good night and visit us online at utahfostercare.org. This is Deborah Lindner and Liz Rivera back again. Liz, what a fantastic peek behind the scenes. It, It was a great look at how Utah Foster Care, DCFS, And foster families can resolve any conflict and really be better communicators. Absolutely. These kinds of conversations are so inspiring. We want to remind everyone listening that we'd love to hear your comments. We want you to like us, of course, online. And we hope you'll want to be a subscriber to Fostering Conversations. A big thanks to our producer, Marshall Shearer Davis, and most of all, a very warm appreciation to all the foster parents out there who are caring for our community's most vulnerable children. So long, everybody. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.